economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to another installment of Faith in Economics. I'm Jacob Michael, one of the grad assistants here at the Gortney Institute. Here with me, as always, are our hosts, Dr. Russ McCullough and Dr. Levi Russell. All right, so what was our question again, Levi? Is it what, when, when is coveting? Yeah. When is no, coveting legal yeah, plunder? Yeah, when is coveting legal plunder? So we're going to talk about coveting and legal plunder, which was uh, done by a a guy named Bastiat back in 1850 is his famous article. So we're going to kind of take things that direction. I think there's some connections there. You might not have thought about either of those words too in depth, and we're probably with you too, but we'll have fun with this podcast just kind of talking about those and tying in little faith and economics concepts. So Levi, you want to lead us off here with coveting? Yeah, so the the, the Merriam-Webster definition of covet is to desire what belongs to another inordinately or culpably. Um, and then another definition is to feel inordinate desire for what belongs to another. And so it seems like it's goes certainly beyond just mere jealousy or, you know, wanting something, but it's, it's to the point where it, you, you want it badly enough that, you're actually doing something wrong by the intensity of the desire you have, or because you want something so much, you're reorienting your life away from, you know, other good things because of this attitude you have towards something else. Yeah. So we got the, in the 10 commandments, um, well, we got thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's goods, right? right. So coveting is the most common translation that's used. So, it seems to bring up property rights in a slightly different way that you are committing a sin by just getting worked up about your neighbor's lawn, I guess. Right. <laughs> Gosh, yeah. that neighbor is just always there outdoing me. And uh, I don't, maybe the yeah. lawn is a terrible idea, but you know, coveting your neighbor's wife, that's this coveting business, which I think uh, opens up some, some other areas. Well, and the thing that I thought of with it is, is that, you know, whatever it is, is it kind of, again, with the 10 commandments, it goes back to one of the commandments is, you know, you should have no other gods before me. Right. right? And it's like, Number well, one. right. And so, well, what does that mean in practical everyday life? Well, for one thing, it means, you know, not putting other, not, not giving other things an importance above God in your life. Right. And so of course, you know, that could be, an activity or a thing or, you know, someone else's things, right? And so in this case, it's just an application of putting something above God where you should have, you should be focusing on more than anything else, right? And so um, that, that would be why, you know, that, that's why this could be inordinate, right? That you're making something an idol because of the, the time and energy you put into desiring it. Yeah, yeah, and it's... Uh using up some scarce resources that maybe yeah. should, could go to other places, right? Yeah. So I, I thought when this topic came up in a men's Bible study that 
in the Garden of Eden, the original sin to me was just obvious, right? The biting of that apple, don't eat from the, the tree of knowledge, correct? Or tree, yeah. yeah, knowledge and, of good and evil. Yeah, yeah. and so uh, here we go, eating it. And so the sin was actually this physical biting of the apple, but this got me thinking, well, maybe the sin actually occurred before the bite, right? If, if you were coveting the knowledge of everything, right. the good and evil, like something you don't have, that was actually the sin before right. you actually did it. So getting kind of worked up, or elevating to trying to figure out something that belongs to someone else, I guess in here, the tree of knowledge belonged to God, and that was the one statement he made, uh, don't, don't be eaten from this tree. The coveting starts, there's the first sin of the world. Uh, and I had never thought about that before. So I, I think this speaks a little bit to your behavior and your conditioning, what you're thinking, like to, as far as suggested ways of life living, which we've kind of debated on that last podcast in different ways. You know, try not to be coveting. Be content with what you got, I think, is sure. uh, content with what you have and content with what God will provide. And so uh, don't bother in coveting your neighbor's wife and coveting your neighbor's goods. So that, that's kind of the, the coveting thing. Any last comments on coveting? Yeah, yeah. I, I think it actually goes back to another previous episode that we had, and, and maybe I'll, I'll link to this. But it kind of goes back to thinking about the – I'm losing my train of thought. But in other words, like where it's not that, it's not that being poor is good, but you have poverty of spirit, right? So that's from the Sermon mm-hmm. on the Mount, right? Yeah. So again, like this contentedness or the, the absence of being covetous, yeah. right, is, is being poor in spirit and not being so concerned about, you know, the, the physical goods of the world. Right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a, that's a good tie. So, uh, all right. So then Bastiat wrote this piece back in 1850 called The Law. And uh, one of our other commandments is thou shall not steal. And so he goes on with almost a poetic way of um, describing what plunder is. And so the human condition is to try to make ourselves better off. And if it's easier to steal from somebody Uh, because there's no consequences compared to work. Work Mm -hmm. has thorns and thistles, we learn in Genesis, right? And so we could potentially plunder somebody else's stuff. So the act of stealing is is the concept of, of plunder. So then he goes on to say, when we set up a government and we start to evolve and think, I want to live in a society where we don't have plunder. The kings and queens had plundered the resources of the peasants for years, right? And so you have this class society where eventually, and this is, I'm paraphrasing some of Bastiat's concepts, that eventually when the peasants get tired of the plunder, they revolt, right? And so there's an upheaval to try to restore property rights. Then once the revolt happens, if they're successful in overtaking the throne, so to speak, then they have to decide do we want to protect the rights of everyone or do we want to be the new plunderer, right? So did we take over to get that position? And Lord Acton would chime in with power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. So we tend to see regimes, uh, Venezuela and current times of people rising to power through 
wanting to use acts of plunder. And so the distinction Bastiat brings is we can use government to create legal plunder. So anytime we have created a law where we can use the force of legal taxation to take from someone and do that to give to someone else, so we're not doing something productive with it as a government, some sort of collective action that, that might be okay. But instead, we're really doing what we call transfer payments in economics. So take from the rich, give to the poor, take from the employed, give to the unemployed, take from the healthy, give to the sick, take from the young, give to the poor. So the business of transfer payments here in today's uh, terms for the federal government runs to the tune of about 65%. So 65 dollars roughly it's floated up to close to 70 percent of a hundred dollars that in taxes from our federal government goes to those sorts of activities those are the activities that bastiat was warning against and so he uh thought that a system was fair if we didn't have plunder but everybody agrees on that one so back to ancient of ancient days let's not steal from each other. If somebody steals, let's do something to them. Let's cut off their hand. Let's uh, kill them. Let's put them in jail, right? So everybody kind of agrees that plunder isn't good for society. But as we start to move towards legal plunder, are we doing anything better? Because then it's possible for those in power to continue to grow and continue to plunder legally through let's say high taxes or high tariffs or big programs, government ownership of major industries, all of that is shifting property rights away from the individual who was created in the image of God to some sort of centrally planned persons or group of people. So powers tends to be concentrated. Bastiat claimed that that's going to be the thing that will cause revolt. The more plunder that goes, the people who are being plundered want their share. So this gets into kind of all types of things, but let me pause there for comments or thoughts. So it kind of strikes me that the last thing you said, so the the people who are being plundered would revolt. And so in our current context, so you would think that, you know, that would be somebody who pays a very high marginal tax rate. Right, but then if if they're connected somehow mm-hmm. and they're getting something for that, right? right? So they may be paying in uh, a lot of federal tax money, but then they may be getting something else out of that process. And so then they wouldn't necessarily be the people that you would think of as being plundered, right? Yeah. So then that's when we get into discussions like the middle class, right? So maybe they really are paying a bunch of money in taxes, but they're not getting any sort of political control or they're not getting any favorable tariffs for their businesses or whatever. Yeah. Right. And so it's not always that you have to have, you know, it depends on who you want to have in mind with that. And, and again, I think, uh, you know, 15th century France would be a different thing to think about, or even you know, 19th century France would be a different thing than what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. And I think another way, another way to look at this too, is that, you know, you, you're talking about it from like an individual an individualist perspective and a property rights point of view. But I think the other part of this too can can be how it sort of, it disrupts the social fabric too. So it's not just about the fact that I have a personal right to something. It's that 
when family structures and community structures are in place that help people out who need help. Mm-hmm. And then you bring in the federal government to, to, to provide that same service. But of course, I mean, that's kind of like, you know, having a, a 10 year old arm wrestle a 500 pound gorilla. I mean, it's just a joke, right? So obviously it, the, having the federal government do certain things could undermine those institutions that are, uh, again, you know, voluntary and decentralized, but, but still very much community or family based, right? And still very much in the purview of sort of collective action. Obviously not all collective action is, you know, state enforced. Some right. of it can be uh, voluntary as well. And so, and I think this is a point that Bastia makes very well is that just because I oppose the government doing something doesn't mean I oppose it being done at all. Yeah. Right. So he, he, he draws that distinction between, uh, at least I think it's him just because I oppose, for example, government provision of education. Okay. For uh, just arguendo, right. Yeah. Doesn't mean that I don't think that I think everyone should never be educated. Right. That's a silly conclusion. Yeah. Uh, from that. Right. So. I think that's yeah. this critique to the socialist, isn't it? That uh, just because you oppose something doesn't mean that, you know, universally you don't want it. Yeah. I think it's in the law. I think it's yeah, in that it book. Is. Yeah. Well, and, and I think that's where our political debates go today that, well, you're against education. Well, no, I'm not. I'm thinking we should have it be done a different way, right? Or something. So, um, but we tend to be in this either or mindset when we start to hear the political candidates. Well, you know, I mean, to me, I think part of it too is, I mean, he calls it false philanthropy. I mean, people think they're trying to help, you know, a lot of these programs, they think they're helping, but I mean, it is legal plunder. You know, you're taking it from someone else. Yeah, and, and and I think there's there's a challenge there because the the funny thing is it's like the story then gets told later on that like oh well everything was so bad so we had to have pick a program mm-hmm. come in and fix the problem yeah and it's like well perhaps that's the case but it could also just be that somebody saw an opportunity to win a political battle mm-hmm. by promising people you know a golden calf and then it it, it undermines you know voluntary institutions in a bad way. So it's not like, you know, before social security, everyone who was over the age of 70 was just dying in the streets, poor and destitute. Right. I mean, that's just, that's just not how it worked, but LBJ and whoever else saw an opportunity to, you know, ensure that they were going to get votes from people. And now, you know, the most consistent voting block in the country is people over the age of 60. Right. Because they're just they, they want to hold on to that. And no. And it's a third rail. Right. Mm-hmm. Nobody, no matter how conservative mm-hmm. you are. Right. If you want to be if you want to get elected, you will not touch any kind of rhetoric around Social Security at right. all. Right. Yeah. And I think Bastiat would. And of course, in 1850, when he's claiming this, this, you know, the United States is far away from that system at all. Sure. So our our transfer system really evolved out of the Great Depression to the large part that it looks today mm-hmm. was when the hockey stick really started turning up. So in Bastiat's day in 1850, there was little to no transfer payments going on at the federal level. I, I am pretty sure of that I've, I've looked at that before. I don't have any exact dates. And so he praises the United States as one of the places where he thinks that'll, that that's strong, mm-hmm. but thinks that's the, the first seed of things going wrong with civil unrest and other things is when we start to allow the government 
to do that because ultimately the powerful people see that the government's a legal way for them to change some things or train and, and maybe it's all with good intentions don't forget the i guess what is it the, the path to hell is paved with good intentions yeah, uh, exactly. so so it's not to discredit the earnestness and the the intentions of these people it just might not work and i i think god is kind of sating that in the ten commandments with this coveting business because I'm seeing coveting being uh, kind of the origin of having a mindset of we should be empowered to take from this person and give to somebody else in the effort of doing right. But if you shall not covet your neighbor's goods, then we're already, not only are we saying you can't steal it, which some people would say legal plunder taxing is taking, uh, right? So Mm -hmm. there's that element of property rights. But I think God even goes further and says, don't even think about doing it. Don't get worked right. up in your life about right. Right. needing to do that or that that's the right thing to do. Life will be easier if you stay away from this coveting business. So I think that looks like a good spot for a break. Uh, you got any last thoughts before we roll into it? Okay, so we'll uh, hit the break and come back after that. Please subscribe on your favorite podcast app. If you use iTunes, please consider giving us a five-star review. It helps other people find us. We'd like to do a mailbag episode, so please send your questions to info at GourtneyInstitute.org. By 2030, the Gortney Institute will be known for its alumni, supporters, and participants who incorporate economic understanding with their faith in their careers, vocations, communities, and personal lives. The Institute will be a nationally recognized source for knowledge and contributions to student experience, society's understanding of private and public solutions to poverty, and the overlapping of markets, governance, and faith. Young audiences will look to the Institute for challenging and engaging education on faith and economics. Don't forget to check out our show notes for this episode at podcast.123povertysucks.org. And uh, Jacob, you wanted to kick us off. You had kind of a concept here from Bastiat's work with. Yeah. um, One thing that I thought was really interesting he talked about is kind of the uh, relationship between the government and individuals. Because he talks about how, you know, an individual can't steal from an individual or harm an individual because he's held liable. As to where the government's almost this anonymous, all-powerful entity where they can do these things and steal from individuals and, you know, oppress people but they're just not held to the same standard almost because it's a collection of individuals rather than just one. Yeah. It's kind of this depersonalized nature of, Oh, well, it's okay. Well, that's the government. That's a government function. Right. And I think that's too often what happens with some of these government failures is there's people behind that, that are either making good decisions or bad decisions. And so to have this, thing out of our relational sphere with people doesn't help. Right. And so 
we actually need that concept of a of a an entity without a person necessarily responsible for it, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that's what a corporation is or a cooperative, right? It's a legal entity that can operate as a, as a person, but is not, you know, n- not any one person is liable for its actions, right? So we, we like that concept, like it's a good concept to have, but you just have to be able to police, you know, the contact of the people in charge. And I think that's where public choice does a good job uh, as, a, as an economic school of thought of thinking about the government not as, you know, this, this one entity, this anonymous entity, uh, even though it is that way, but it's also run by people with a set of incentives. So, yeah. you know, people in bureaucratic roles have incentives. People in political roles have, you know, they want to get, they want to get elected. So how, how does that affect their behavior? Yeah, and the distinction between the corporation and the government, though, is the government can operate through coercion. They can force things to happen. Mm-hmm. Sure. Whereas the corporation is still operating in the rules of the game of voluntary behavior. Right. Otherwise, well, gets otherwise right corporations there. get put in jail or their CEOs. I just did a little right. thing with Tyco's CEO, Dennis Kozlowski, with my class. The CEO does something wrong. That person goes to jail. So they're still operating in within the confines that we still set up for the individual as well. Right. The corporation has to work within that within that context also. Right. So that I think is a is a distinction there. Right. You just I, I just don't want to get. You know, you don't you don't want to you don't want to go down the road of saying like creating entities that are not linked to directly to people is not necessarily a bad thing. It's yeah. just about what, what what rights you give them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, and I think that's what Bastiat really argues here is when when he gets into socialism. So you know the the fight between people who want to have things to be shared more, if you will, uh, more government control, government ownership of whatever, uh, through redistribution or otherwise. He says here, uh, but we assure the socialists that we repudiate only forced organization, not natural organization. And, uh, and what he was getting at is that as long as associations are voluntary, that's fine. So collective action of individuals, households, communities, that's all good. Like nobody's, nobody's against that. But when we allow a smaller group of people to force associations on other people. We're starting to push the bounds of of his comfort level. And and the more we start to do that, the more we get into, is it right? Is that what maybe God intended? I I kind of am looking at this coveting thing, thinking, is this a seed for socialism? So if you follow my logic, if, if you're looking at, the coveting to correct a wrong and you're able to get into power or you have friends who are in power to help make that happen through legal plunder of transfers, then is this support, if coveting is wrong and coveting leads to maybe a more socialist type of government, then is this an argument, biblical argument for markets more so than big government? And I'll, I'll throw that out there. That's kind of a, I'm just kind of going through a logical progression, but I, I'm kind of seeing it as, yeah, there's property rights there. There's yeah, anyway, a little bit, might be a weak argument, but I'm ready. I'm ready for heat. In fact, we were just trying to encourage people to, 
you know, email us if you want to uh, throw Russ under the bus on that. Yeah. You're welcome to. Hey, that, that rhymes. Uh, I like that. Yeah, yeah. So, Dick. Well, yeah, I was going to say, doesn't I think Bashiach kind of answers that because he talks about how society shouldn't be set up to be fair necessarily and that, like, this false philanthropy is one of the two causes, like we said, that leads to plunder. And yeah. so, like, yeah, he, he talks about how society should be set up around voluntary philanthropy, yeah. which is markets. Right, right. right. Yeah, and it's, it's like we're trying to elevate it, like our morals up to that government system, and then it's okay, but then we're mixing two things that I think Bastiat's arguing we shouldn't be mixing, because it, that stuff should be left at the individual level, and now we're allowing a smaller group of people to impose that on other people. And that could, that could be yeah. majority of 51% to 49%, right, depending on who gets into office. But see, I think that I think that maybe is where it goes a little too far, right? So I mean, you know, we talk about voluntary associations. Well, you know, I, you know, if the fundamental unit of society is a family, right? Then I mean, there's something that's just fundamentally not voluntary about that. Like you don't, you didn't choose your <laughs> right. parents. You got born into it, right? And and you didn't choose your children. And that's where I mean, people would push back against you. Big libertarians would say. The fundamental unit's not the family, it's the individual. Right. right? And yeah. I, I might be somewhere in that camp, but I'm, yeah, not, I'm not ready to push at this point. But, yeah, but I, I, and I, think I the, hear you. Right. So I think the problem there is, is if you, the more you push the individualism thing, the more you, you, cre you, you get rid of loyalty and you get rid of duty. Yeah. And, and when, you, when you chip away at that stuff. Now, obviously, nobody's saying, like, we need to delete the concept of duty and loyalty. Yeah. Right? Nobody's, nobody's making that bold of a statement, but I think it's an unintended consequence of treating everybody mm -hmm. as if society's fundamental unit is an individual, that it does chip away at that stuff. Right. You know, it's like, well, I don't, you know, and I'm a dad, right? So I'm always going to talk, be talking from the point of view of a dad, but it's like, uh, you know, I shouldn't have to, you know, give up my money for my, you know, for these little kids that I didn't ask for, right? Because mm -hmm. it's not voluntary. I didn't ask to have them around. I didn't ask to have parents that, you know, were sick. And so I have to take care of them. You know, somebody else ought to have to do that kind of stuff. Yeah. Well, there's a recipe for popular support for this legal plunder, right? It's like, well, just give me Social Security so I don't have to deal with my sick parents anymore. I've and, heard people make that argument. Sure. They, they want the government to do it right. so they don't have to. It, and and it, it's utility yep. improving for them, exactly. right? Exactly. Um, so you, you, and you get that from <laughs> an individualist point of view. And whether whether the person calls themselves a leftist or a libertarian or, a, or even a, you know, a, a Republican or something like that, the, the fundamental thing be, behind all of that is this individualist kind of point of view. Yeah. And, and so Wasn't it right, anyway. Dr. Ferguson, who, uh, Rachel, from the last uh, episode that said something about sometimes getting forced into those situations, yeah. it, it can be a good thing that we have to deal with our family. Was yeah. that her? Am I thinking something It was her, but it was, two, okay. it was two episodes back. But okay. yeah, so, you know, it's, it's kind of an interesting thing. If you think about movies that we watch, and so, for instance, there's a, a big joke about Harry Potter. Check it out on YouTube. It's called How It Should Have Ended. <laughs> so there's a How It Should Have Ended for Harry Potter. Mm. And so instead of the big battle with the wands between Harry and the snake guy or whatever, Snape, the professor, just for some reason didn't die, I guess. And then he comes up with a 1911 and just puts a slug in the back of Baltimore's head, right? This ruined the movie for me. Right, and so, well, I mean, so, <laughs> yeah, yeah, we if you haven't watched it by life. then, if you haven't watched it by now, you're not watching it, so. But, but you see my point is like the fact that they have to build 
they have to say like, oh, well, you know, normal people technology doesn't work in the magic world so yeah. that they can put these constraints on people's behavior, right? Because we're like watching old movie from the eighties, right? When nobody had a cell phone. I was like, oh, well, that problem could have been solved if somebody just had a cell phone. You know what I mean? And it's <laughs> yeah. like, it, 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 the, the movie is better because there are limitations, uh -huh. you know? And so I think that, that maybe is another way to say what she was getting at is like, because there are constraints on my ability to decide what happens with my time, you know, I'm actually more fulfilled by that mm -hmm. because I see, you know, it, it's a yeah. point of reference thing. Yeah. Well, I, I, I wanted to get to this topic of, a part of me thinks the drive, like looking at somebody who's well off or has nice things is kind of a driver for me to want to do better, right? So am I coveting by looking at their stuff and say, oh man, I wish it'd be great to have drive a car like that or have a house like that or uh, have a wife like that. Uh, <laughs> as a single person, not, uh, yes, don't, Dana, don't, don't, don't be mailbagging in here. Uh, but, but you get my point that does that help society move along that I could see somebody saying, well, that's what makes the world go around. You know, coveting is there and maybe that's just part of our simple nature. And of course it's always going to be there, but does that, is that good in a way? And, and so I, I kind of want to make that distinction from other desires. So what would be, if you're not coveting, do you have that drive and where does it come from? And uh, how can we make sure it's not coveting or where, where does it cross the line? It seems kind of great. I mean, it sounds again, I feel like I always bring this up with the parable of the talents, right? You know, you might not be coveting, but you're going out and doing, using your skills to do something, right? Okay. Yeah. So creating a, a win-win situation. But maybe right? it only takes you so far, you know, maybe you stop wanting to achieve. Well, I, I think, I think the way you can think about it is just having sort of a properly formed conscience or having, the right attitude about your place in things, right? So we, you know, a lot of times when you see an athlete, uh, you know, they win something, right? And they say, they're giving a speech. You're like, well, I want to thank my mom and, you know, and thank God, you know, the man upstairs. And, and, you know, so people sort of mock that, but at the same time, like, you know, if God is the efficient cause, the ground of all being, right, then everything that's good, right? We say God is, God is goodness, mm -hmm. right? Itself. And so like, if that's the case, then anything that is good, anything that is beneficial, anything, any good drive that you have comes from God, right? And so it's sort of a humility thing, uh, being humble about. So yes, of course, choosing to participate in the good is a good thing for you to do. Yeah. But when you put when you put those uh, attainments or goods or uh, sorry, I shouldn't say goods, right? Attainments or or items or or things that you want above. God or above where they should be, you know, maybe even just putting them above your family, right? That would be a bad thing, right? So that's when it becomes, you know, a, a, a problem, a sinful yeah. sort of situation. Well, and so I, I want to tie this back to capitalism because this to me has given some, some insights. So I'm thinking coveting is potentially leading to a zero-sum game. So a zero-sum game, listeners, we've said this a few times, I think, my wins are your losses. I win $100, you lost $100, right? So there's, there's no um, value creation in total between the two people that were involved in the exchange. And so coveting, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Don't make those plans to really get hurt that wife, right? Not just a wife, but <laughs> that particular wife. You shall not covet your neighbor's goods. So when you see the nice car, 
you're not planning to somehow take that car, thou shall not steal. So I think right. this is kind of a precursor into sure. this zero sum mentality of, of that's how I'm going to better myself is through plundering or taking. And so let's not mm -hmm. even have that mindset. So what mindset should we have? Well, when we have a desire for something in a economy where the rules are the game is that you have to entice somebody into a voluntary trade. The only reason they're doing it is because they're made better off. You're doing it because you're made better off, otherwise you wouldn't do it. And so capitalism provides this win-win framework. That's to me the good, right? That is, I think, the market system, I, I think I've said it before, but I think it's divine. I think the system that God set up with us being able to do these voluntary exchanges is an incredible, fascinating thing that we can both win, right? We don't have to ever turn to plunder. So my, I mean, kind of my question for you, and I might be off then. So when I go and enter the workforce, I obviously want to have, you know, the next job over, up and up. So if I perform to try to take someone's job because it's best for me and capitalism tells me I want to, you know, do the best I can and I get that job, it's not zero sum. If you take the job through killing that person, okay. yeah. <laughs> then we're on another commandment somewhere, I think. Well, but or if you but take isn't it coveting through, what started all that? Because um, I want what he has. I I think the rules of the game would say if your employer says I want the best person in the best position. So you know, if a guy named Tom Brady wins the quarterback position, there was a reason why the other guy lost his job, mm -hmm. right? So the rules of the game going into it in that company is that there's potential for job turnover, job turning. The reality is that usually the status quo is harder to overturn unless the company is set up so that mm -hmm. it's somehow competitive. But usually it would take that person leaving their job or doing something unproductive that, you know, they get downsized or moved out. So in that respect, I don't, I don't see that as zero okay. sum. I think that's still moving, moving resources to higher and better uses. Yeah, so I think, I think the standard objection to that is that in that process of churn, someone will at least for a period of time be losing out, right? So if Jacob gets the job, Dave goes home without an income now, right? And so if there's a point at which you can justify quote unquote legal plunder is when people won't voluntarily help smooth out those risks for others in their community or family or whatever. And so you have to find a way around it. Now, I don't think that actually plays out. I mean, that's the story we're all told yeah. ex post after yeah. some, some new, you know, system is contrived you know, some legal plunder type system is contrived. Yeah. But and it probably depends on the level of greed in society, right? Like how bad is it to where nobody wants to help out right. Dave in his job, either yeah. voluntarily or... Sure. I, I, and I immediately go to a private uh, unemployment insurance concept, right? Yeah. What we wouldn't necessarily have to have the government. We could all pay insurance premiums to, hey, if you lose your job, you've already been paying X amount a month. You get, you know, whatever. That could be completely... Um, privatized, perhaps. Yeah. But I think what we're talking about is the sort of thing of, you know, if men were angels, we wouldn't need politicians, right? Yeah. So it's like there, there would be no need for, I guess, zero, zero sum transfers yeah. or, you know, A loses and B gains type transfers 
if everybody was willing to, and you know, and again, you can always talk about a thousand different reasons for that. You know, maybe the system is too big and you know, people, because they talk about, uh, psychologists talk about this, how you're only able to kind of maintain a certain number of sort of uh, close acquaintances and contacts. You know, like it doesn't matter yeah. how many people you can connect to with your phone. Yeah. Your, your, your brain is only able to handle so many like relationships. 120. Right. Is, sure. Is and and so if that's the case, then, you know, to the extent that you diminish a local community and diminish, you know, the, the, the duty and, and, and responsibilities associated with that community, then people, you know, people can't organize voluntarily on a federal level. That's just silly. Yeah. Right, because there's well, in our case, 350 some thousand people. Right, yeah. so it's just not going to happen. And so, yeah, I think it's sort of a, a feedback loop where, you know, the nose, the, the camel's nose gets under the tent, right, and you start the legal plunder process, and then it just sort of feeds itself because it undermines institutions that are voluntary, and so then that leads to the building up of non-voluntary plunderous type institutions. Yeah. Yeah, and I think so. The the you know what are the rules of the game going to be in heaven or the the second afterlife here for us? Are, are we going to have transfer payments? Are we going to have government? Are we going to have people uh, down on their luck? Of course, the answer to most of that's no. But will there still be exchange? I think there will be, and so it'll will. But that those morals and that code will just naturally be with us, right? It won't be corrupted by sin anymore, and so now you've got this win-win thing going on even though we're all doing real good we there's still going to be potential gains from trade i can't i can't wait time. till russ till your book uh and <laughs> i've got a title oh, here for comes you. the public pressure yeah here's your here's your book title economic eschatology Ooh. is your book title so it's an alliterative title which is my favorite thing but so there you go i can't wait till your book so you're throwing out big things here eschatology tell our listeners what eschatology yeah, I was about is. To google it yeah so we're talking about sort of the end of the world and and um you know all the stuff that's in the book of revelation that yeah, kind of thing yeah so russ you 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 often bring up sort of the afterlife in these economic contexts yeah. and it's so hard for me to get my brain about even <laughs> how even to think about that but i'm glad you bro you broached the subject and all right i'm, I'm well, looking forward to reading your book it's so. fun yeah some <laughs> uh someday it'll come all right well i think that wraps us up once again we seem to have tackled most of the world's problems here of uh, faith and economics uh, but i think we have a few more to talk about next week i'm sure so on behalf of everyone here at the Gorton Institute, uh, be fruitful and multiply. Thanks.